John chapter 1. We're going to read the first 18 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to be in the Lord's house again this morning. Good to be with Lord's people this morning. Um, Looking forward to part two of of this series that we're currently in is we're looking at um, what we believe as a church, right? Knowing what we believe and why we believe these things. Did we just make these things up? Where do we get them from, right? It's important we know and it's important that we're grounded in knowing the truth. The good news is he's revealed to us his word by which we can know him. Last week we talked about how it is we can know God. What does God have to say about God? This week we're going to continue that by looking at his son, Jesus. Once again, no small topic, right? So let's ask God and his blessing and favor upon his word this morning as we open the scriptures. Lord, we gather today to once again hear from you. We are your people The Bible says we are the sheep of your pasture. And we have always great need to hear from you. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us your statutes. That you would direct our steps by your word of truth. That you would show us today wonderful things found in your book of of scripture. This, This word that you've revealed to us so graciously. Father, we are grateful for your son, Jesus, who serves as our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, the one who alone provides us with forgiveness of sins 
And God, you have much to say about your son. You sent him with a purpose. You sent him to carry out a particular mission. You sent him to show the world who you are. And I pray today that we have ears to hear what you have to say about your son. I pray that this people here would desire to know Jesus, to grow in him, and to tell others about him. I pray we would all see that he is our great treasure. He is our pearl of great price. He is worth it all. I pray that we would strive to gain Christ all of our days. Remind us always, Lord, that in Christ alone, our eternal hope is found. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to turn your attention here right out of the gate to the book of Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Chapter 18. Chapter 18, uh, starting in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Moses is speaking to the people here. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Listen to what Moses says here. Him you shall hear. Yes, we're in the Old Testament, by the way. We're in the Old Testament. And here Moses is talking about this one who's going to come, this prophet who's going to come. And he's saying very clearly... Him you shall hear. A few verses later, the Lord is speaking to Moses in 17 and 18. I'll pick it up in 18. The Lord says to Moses, I will raise up for them, for my people, a prophet like you, the Lord says, from among their brethren, and will put, listen, I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Church, we better listen to those words. Those are Old Testament words, but have incredible New Testament significance, do they not? Jesus is a prophet like Moses. Jesus will speak to the people all that God's commanding him. Jesus is the one the people need to listen to. In the Old Testament, God speaks through his prophets, doesn't he? And Jesus is deemed to be a prophet yet to come in Deuteronomy. And the warning that's put forth there, to, heed, to not heed this one that's to come, that's Jesus, this warning is set forth. He says, I will require it of him. In other words, you are going to be held accountable for what you do with Jesus. I will require it of him. There's going to be a day of reckoning. And to use the biblical terminology, you would be a fool not to heed the words of Jesus. He speaks what God puts in his mouth to speak. And to deny the words of Jesus is to deny the words of God himself. When we go to the New Testament and we look at Luke 9, verse 35, which is the, the passage of the transfiguration, a voice comes out of the cloud. You remember that? A voice comes out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. God's saying that. This is my Son, whom I love. Hear Him. 
God is speaking, he's identifying Jesus as his beloved son. And he's calling us to hear him as well, to listen to this son, to do what he says. Remember, we got to go back to, to some basics here. We can't just listen. James tells us that the listening and the doing go hand in hand, don't they? To, to disconnect the listening, being a hearer and a doer, if we want to disconnect those, the Bible says that we are deceiving ourselves. You might remember also Luke 4, 22 was the baptism of Jesus and a voice comes at that point too saying, and this is directly God speaking to Jesus, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. He's well pleased in his son and what follows in Christ's life and ministry is an outflow of God's love set upon his son. I love the passage that was read in John chapter 1 this morning. Thank you, uh, Michael, for reading that. Because really in so many ways, it paints a picture of who this Jesus is that we're talking about this morning. In the first 18 verses alone, Jesus is referred to as the Word, the Logos. He's referred to as eternal, in the beginning, right? He's with God. He's He's everlasting. We talked about God last week, an everlasting God. This Jesus, according to the Bible, is with God. He was with God. In the beginning, he was with God. This Jesus is is deity. He is God the Son. We talked about God the Father last week. God the Son. We talked about God is one, but there are three persons that make up this Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's next week. Preview. We see in verse 3, he's co-creator. All things were made through him. Nothing was made that was made. He was, he was part of that. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us the same thing. He was, he was there. He helped create the world. We see in the same John 1 prologue that he's life. In him was life. We see that he's light. Not only is is he light, but he's the giver of light to every man coming into the world. He's the giver of light. He's the one that makes it possible for you and me to shine our light. He's the one who gives light. He was the one, according to John 1, who was sent into the world. He was sent. He gives the right The authority to become a child of God, chapter 1, verse 12. He's the one who became flesh, verse 14. He tabernacled among us for a time. He became flesh. He was in the heavenlies with the Father. He came down here, took on flesh and bones just like you and me. He became a man. And yet he was fully God. When we come to understand what God has to say about his son Jesus, it's important we understand that he was fully man and he was fully God. Fully man and he was fully God. Let's be clear. Is it a mystery? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's true. He's the one through whom grace and truth come. Verse 17 He's the only begotten Son of God. 
He's the one, verse 18, who has been sent to declare or put on display or manifest God. Jesus came and showed forth to the world who God was. Remember how important this is because God is spirit. He doesn't have a body like us. And so he sends Jesus in our body, in our form, in our likeness to show everyone what God is like. Jesus is walking around all over the place and wherever he goes, people are able to see with their eyes God. Now, that, now, there were a lot of folks who didn't quite get that and understand that. Even Philip, one of his own followers, didn't truly get that. Show us the Father. And he said, oh, Philip, I've been with you so long, and you've not recognized this. You've not picked up on this. Have I not said that, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and, and I'm sure he's going like this, like you and me would have been doing the same thing. Hard to get, hard to grasp, hard to understand, maybe. But it is true. Jesus came to declare and show forth God. When you keep reading John 1, you discover several more descriptors. I'm just going to zip through some of these because there are so many just in John chapter 1. The Lord, he's referenced as the Lord, the anointed one. He's the one who is preferred. 127, as John is describing this Christ to come, the one who is preferred. It reminds me of the words of Paul in talking about Christ who has preeminence, right? He's the priority. In verse 29 and in verse 36, we see that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In verse 34 and in verse 49, he's referenced as the Son of God. He's deemed a rabbi or a teacher, In verse 38 and 49, he's deemed the Messiah in verse 41, the Christ. He's deemed in verse 45, the Jesus of Nazareth. He has a locale, a location. He's the son of Joseph. Verse 49, he is the king of Israel. In verse 51, Jesus himself gives his own designation as the chapter concludes, the son of man. A designation of divinity itself. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name, says John in chapter 20, verse 31, giving us a purpose for which this gospel of John has been written. You see, it's been written for this very purpose, but the gospel message as a whole is predicated upon believing in the Jesus of the scriptures, receiving him as the Christ, the very son of God. The gospel truth is centered on Jesus. We cannot, friends, talk of the gospel and leave out Jesus. Did you hear that? We can't talk about the gospel and leave out Jesus. We can't share this wonderful gospel message and think for a moment that we can do so without mentioning the name Jesus. It's imperative we include Jesus in all that we're talking about as we come to the gospel. We can't strive, as Paul says, to advance this gospel and at the same time abandon Jesus. We go back to those words early on. It's important we hear 
him. We're hearing from him. When Peter and Paul are preaching about the kingdom of God, they're preaching and teaching about whom, church? Jesus. That's who they're preaching. That's why they got slapped on the hand, so to speak. Actually, they got whipped and flogged for it, for preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. When 3,000 people come to saving faith that day in Acts 2, they do so having been cut to the heart about whom? Jesus and about his word. They turn to Jesus and they believe the message that's preached. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. And this word of God, friends, is grounded in the good news. It's embodied in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son. And we're coming to this series looking at a particular question. What does God have to say about, and last week we talked about, what's he have to say about God himself? This week, the question is this. What does God have to say about Jesus? That's the central question. What's he have to say about Jesus? And he has a great deal to say about his son and about our response to his son. We also come to this series so that the church might know what the church believes. It's important the church understands and knows what we believe Do you know what you believe as a Christ follower? Are you able to give, as 1 Peter 3, 15 says, are you able to give an answer to those who ask you a reason for the hope that lies within you? Is anybody asking you a reason for the hope that lies within you? If they're not asking you, perhaps they're not seeing anything. You might be inclined to ask that question. Well, nobody, Hey, what if no one asks me? Am I off the hook? No. No one's asking you the question. I would begin to wonder whether or not they're seeing anything of Christ in you. Knowing what you believe must include a right understanding of Jesus. Where do we turn, friends, to get this right understanding of who Jesus is? In a few weeks, we're going to be talking about the authority of the Scriptures. But this is where we turn. This is what we stand upon. This is our word of truth. Knowing what you believe about Jesus, I hope it's not based upon your own thinking or that it's grounded in, in, in what man might say about it, but fully established, rooted in what God's given to us in his word. I think it's important to realize that the question we're dealing with By default, it sends us back to God's revealed word. What does God have to say here in God's word about Jesus? Alistair Begg and and, and, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, they collaborated on a book called Name Above All Names. Uh, It's an excellent read. And and one of the things in there that they, they speak to about Jesus, they were reminded that their teachers growing up reminded them that the Bible is a, is a book that's all about, it's, it's going to be a novel piece of information. It's all about Jesus. Here's what they said about this. This is, this is five helpful handles. I, I really like this. They said in the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. 
in the Acts of the Apostles, Jesus is preached. In the letters of the epistles, Jesus is explained. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus is expected. So he's predicted, he's revealed, he's preached, he's explained, he's expected. And he goes on and says, the truth is that the Bible will be an impenetrable mystery at every point where we take our eyes away from Christ. We'll lose our way around the Bible when we fail to look at Jesus. Amen? When we fail and we stop looking at Jesus, the Bible is going to be really difficult to get and grasp. If you're interested in what God has to say, you need to look no further than his word. God says a whole lot here. He says a whole lot. It's tragic that so few people access what God has to say. You want to know what he has to say about Jesus? Open his word. God is speaking, friends. And, he, and what he says, here's the thing, what he says is true. He cannot tell a lie. He offers us those wonderful words of life. And the only place where you're going to discover his truth is right here. The morning news isn't going to give it to you. The daily blogosphere isn't going to give it to you. So are you interested in what God has to say? That would be a good question. Here's what God has to say about Jesus, church. I'd like to give you these five identifiers for who this Jesus of the scriptures is. Five identifiers, I think, that ground one on solid footing for building a relationship with God. Knowing and understanding these five things we're going to talk about this morning will provide you a framework for why building on the foundation of Jesus is not only a good idea, practically speaking, great idea, practically speaking, to build on Jesus. But we're going to see why it's also a necessity. I was reminded of those words we read earlier. Whoever does not hear his words, I will require it of him. So what does he have to say about his son, Jesus? I want to give it to you in, in, in a real simple way. So if you're writing, taking notes, you can just put J-E-S-U-S. Right? So we'll remember these things about what God has to say about Jesus by remembering Jesus. J-E-S-U-S. That's how we're going to remember it this morning. So what's he have to say about Jesus? Here's the first thing he says about Jesus. God says that Jesus is judge. Judge. He's the judge. Right? John 5, 22 and 23. For the Father judges no one, Jesus says, but has committed all judgment to the Son. A little bit later in John chapter 12, 47, 49, Jesus says, For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, now some of you are going, well, wait a minute. God just committed judgment to the Son. And now he's saying, I've not come to judge, but I've come to save. We've got to understand, Jesus has come already once, but Jesus is coming again. And the next time he comes, he's not coming to save the world. He's coming to judge the world. Okay? So that's where we're going with John 12, that passage. Jesus says, he who rejects me and does not receive my words 
has that which judges him. So now this opens up another arena of judgment from the judge. Listen to what he says. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say, what I should speak. So what he says, his word will be the word by which you are judged in that last day. What are you doing with his word? He's the judge. He's given the word, and the word that he's given is a word from his Father. What are you doing with his word? So God has committed all judgment to his son, and yet the son says that he came not to judge. This first time he came not to judge, but to save the world. And any judgment that comes is directed at what people do with his words that Jesus spoke. The words that God gave him to speak. These authoritative words. Remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? They were wowed. They were amazed. He spoke with such authority. Well, why is it that he spoke with such authority? Listen, because he's God speaking the very words of God. They'd not heard anybody speak like that before. So Jesus came to save the world regarding sin, and yet God commits all judgment to his son. If Jesus is granted all authority to judge the world, maybe the next question here underneath the fact that he's a judge, maybe this is a, a follow-up question. By what standard does he judge? If he's the judge, how many of you want to know by what standard is he judging? Anybody want to know that? Huh? If he's the judge... When it comes time for me to be gone here and done here, or when Christ does come back and he's going to be judging, I want to know by what standard he's judging. Is it predicated on how smart you are? How many letters you have behind your name? How educated you are? Is it based upon your title? Your rank? Is it determined based upon your family upbringing? If you have godly parents, does that mean you're in? Is the standard a, a sliding scale based upon how many more good deeds you do than the neighbor down the road? Is the standard random? Is it simply by chance? How does God go about judging the world through his son? We're not left in the dark, friends. He gives us answers to that question. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is traveling around the Mediterranean and he has a stay in Athens, a city that is submerged in idols. Remember that place? And he's preaching and teaching to this group of people who have this unknown God. And Paul is unwrapping, he's unveiling this unknown God. He's explaining to them who this unknown God is. And in the midst of that conversation, in the midst of that word that goes forth, Paul says these words, starting in verse 30 of Acts 17. He says, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to what? Repent. Why? Because he has appointed a day, God's appointed a day, on which he will judge the world, listen, here it is, in righteousness. He will judge the world in righteousness. By whom? By the man, capital M, that's Jesus, by the man whom he has ordained. And he's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is the assurance that this is going to happen just like he said it would. So if the standard is righteousness, 
How then do I obtain such righteousness? What's it take to acquire the righteousness spoken of? If the Son is judging by means of a righteous standard, where does that place me and you? Do I come into this world with a default righteous standard? No. No. We don't. So, by what means then do I obtain God's righteousness? I need to understand the standard by which God is judging through his son. That's why we read this morning 2 Corinthians 5.21. For God made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us. Listen, here's the wonderful part. That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. That's how we get this, obtain this righteousness. It's through Christ alone. It's through a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, listen, he is a just judge. And the Bible speaks of a day, capital D, approaching. Remember that day that's approaching? It's because of that day approaching that we're called in the scripture to exhort one another daily, right? Stir one another up to good works because of this day that's coming. A day is coming when God is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he's ordained. And as judge, he's been given authority to execute Judgment, John 5, 28 says, do not marvel at this. Do not marvel at this. In other words, get ready. In other words, be alert. Take heed. Hear him. Hear the son. A judge, we need to remember the role of a judge. A judge makes the call. He has the final word. He has the final say. He serves as the authority. And that's Jesus. That's Jesus. What you believe regarding God the son and his words will show up on the last day. His standard is clearly outlined. So do you believe this morning that your only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness? Is that where your only hope is found? Can you declare this morning that I am on the Lord's side? Are you ready for this judgment to come? Listen, no one's exempt here from this. No one gets a free pass here. All will be judged by the Son according to the standard of the Son's perfect righteousness. And with such a judge and such a standard, the Bible calls us to repent of our sin, to forsake our ways and flee to Christ, to rid ourselves of what the Bible says, our own filthy rags of righteousness, and to cling to the righteousness that only God provides through His Son, Jesus. So the J is what? Everybody say it. Judge, okay? What God has to say about his son, Jesus, Jesus is judge. He's committed all judgment to his son, Jesus. What else does God have to say about Jesus? Here's the E. God wants to tell us this about Jesus. It's only through Jesus where we have everlasting life. Everlasting life. I want you to remember, everlasting life. This life comes through Jesus. John three sixteen. hopefully a familiar passage to all of us by this point. Whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. So what we have here is belief in Jesus equating to everlasting life. John 6, 47 says it again. He who believes in me has everlasting life. It's important we understand here that what we believe about Jesus is Pivotal. You know what a, a pivotal, you know, something that, that turns on the hinge. It can go. It's, this is pivotal. What you believe about Jesus 
It's, it's going to determine not the steps you take necessarily just in this lifetime, but even greater. It's going to determine what happens when this life is done. It's pivotal. You have a clear understanding of who Jesus is and what you believe about Jesus. In John 3, 36, it says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Can we repeat it? Can we say it one more time? I mean, the Bible gives it not once, not twice, three times here I've read. There's more. I'm just giving you a couple of them to let you know. The Bible is saying this quite often. Believe in Jesus. You have everlasting life. Now, John 3, 36 goes on and says, He who does not believe the Son... What about that person? It says, shall not see life. Shall not see life. Well, what, what are we talking about? It goes on and says, but the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God. I asked this question to our family this week. How many of you here want the wrath of God? I explained. I made sure everybody understood. Wrath of God. Angry, angry, angry. Fury. How many of you want the anger of God upon you? Anybody here want the wrath of God upon you? And just like here in this place, no one raised their hand. Everybody kind of smiled like, no, I don't, no. So intellectually, there's not a one of us that want that. We, We don't desire the wrath of God. We have these pictures in our head of what that is. But I would ask the question. We say we don't want and desire the wrath of God, and yet by our lives... By our lives and the way that we live our lives, are we truly living lives that reflect a belief in Jesus? He who says he abides in him ought himself also to what? Walk as Christ himself walked. John 3:18 says, "He who believes in him is not condemned." That's, that's wonderful news. There's now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, right? That's wonderful, Romans 8, 1. But Johnny 3, 18 says, but he who does not believe, here's the other side of it again. He who does not believe is condemned already. Why are they condemned already? Here's why. He tells us. Because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 8, 24 tells us these startling words. If you do not believe that I am he, Jesus says, You will die in your sins. You're going to die in your sins, Jesus says. There's coming a day, capital D, when some will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous are going to go into eternal or everlasting life. Right? That's the end of the parable in Matthew 25. The sheep and the goats, remember that? And then there's this earth-shattering verse. We talked about this in the men's room here just before we came in. John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do you know how many people hate that verse? They are disgusted with that verse. If they could tear one verse out of the scripture, that might be the one. They don't like it that Jesus is the only way. But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He goes on, he says, no one comes to the Father, God, no one comes to the Father except through me. 
So Jesus, according to the scriptures, is the only way to everlasting life. You want everlasting life? Jesus is the way. Can we make this any simpler? You want everlasting life? Jesus is the way to the Father to gain everlasting life. Everlasting life found only through the person and work, finished work, by the way, of Jesus. You can live a long life, but if you try to come to God any other way, you're going to be disappointed in the end. That's those, those words in, in Matthew 7 ring in my ears about this point. Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all these wonderful things in your name? And he's going to say to those folks away from me, I never knew you. I never had any relationship with you. You must come through the gate of the chief shepherd. He's the door through which you must be saved. Only by entering his narrow gate will you experience the everlasting life that the Bible is speaking of. No other name under heaven given among men is there by which you must be saved. Jesus. Belief in Jesus, taking heed to Jesus, placing your trust solely in Christ alone for salvation. This is the directive that's set forth by the Bible. I'm not making this up. This is right here. This is the good news. And this is the directive that we uphold being in Christ Jesus. So what else do we believe about Jesus? We believe the J is what? Judge. What's the E? Everlasting life. Okay, so J-E. Now we're on S, right? If I'm, my spelling is correct. J-E-S. S. Here's the, here's the S. He's, God would say that Jesus is our sin bearer. He would want us to know that we have someone who has taken care of our sin. And this is where the wonderful teaching and doctrine of substitutionary atonement is so, so important. So important. A few passages that help kind of just bring this out. It goes, we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. You remember after the sin had occurred and after the judgment had happened, at the end of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21, it says that Adam, for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. You remember how they tried to do it themselves? You know, they tried to hide themselves. Remember that? Didn't go too well, did it? After all this happened, God himself clothes them. A, a, a picture, a type, a foreshadowing, if you will, of how God was going to clothe us. And he was going to do that through Christ himself. Well, you, you keep flipping a few chapters in Genesis and you see another wonderful foreshadowing picture. Genesis 22. You remember when God told Abraham, he sent him on a mission. He said, go up to Mount Moriah. I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, and I want you to sacrifice him there on the altar. The Bible says, oh, Abraham, believe it or not, believe it or not, the Bible says Abraham obeyed. And he took his son and they went up to the mountain and he had him, he laid him out there on the altar, had him prepared. He takes out his knife. He's ready to slay his son. And he's here, Abraham, Abraham. And do you remember the end of the passage in Genesis 22? His son is not killed. But there's still a sacrifice that's needed. And you remember off in the bushes, God provides a ram. A wonderful picture of what was to come. And listen, what was to come was that God's only son was going to die on that altar, on that cross, on that tree. He did die, 
But in dying, he became your substitute and my substitute, taking upon himself the sin of the world. Wonderful pictures. And then we get to 1 John 2, 1 and 2, and it says, if anyone sins. Anybody here sin? Anybody? Hey, this, let's make this real practical. If anyone sins, listen to what it says. We have an advocate before the Father, with the Father. Who's our advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous. If we sin, and he's written these things that we might not sin, we don't go around trying to sin, but if we do sin, we have an advocate for the Father. His name is Jesus, and he's the righteous one. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That's the substitutionary idea. Our sin bearer. See, sin separates you and me from God. And God sent his son from the heavenlies, born of a virgin. And he took on flesh. He lived a sinless life in thought, word, and deed. I don't know how that happens. You don't either, because we don't do that. But God did it through his son. Perfect life. He is the sole sin bearer. He's the only one who can bear your load of sin. You can't. No other man can. But God makes a way. Remember the song? God will make a way where there seems to be no way. There seem to be no way. We seem to be lost. We seem to be without hope. But God made a way. His own son took your sin and my sin upon himself when he nailed it to the cross. And so God says that his son is the judge. God's son is the, is the way, the means of providing everlasting life. And God's son is our sin bearer. We've come to the you, haven't we, in Jesus? J-E-S-U. Here's what I think God would want us to know and understand about Jesus, his son. He was all about unity. Unity. Jesus was all about unity. Unity of the brethren was central, was it not, to his prayer before going to the cross? John 17. In John 17, we have God the Father, we have God the Son, we have God the Spirit. We have three persons, we have one God. There's a unity aspect in the Godhead, isn't there? Christ is the head, his people are the parts of the body of Christ, and the parts are connected to the head, but the parts are also connected to one another according to the Bible. There's this unity that's called for in the church of Jesus Christ. And that unity is not just word speak, it's modeled by the Godhead. See, God sends his son and takes part in sending the spirit. The son doesn't operate apart from what the father calls him to do. And the spirit only speaks, as we'll find out next week, he only speaks what Jesus says. He's always pointing to the things of Jesus. And so each person in the Godhead functions in tandem with the others. They are three persons, but they exhibit a unity that is just wonderful to behold. A unity. Jesus prays that those who follow him in his steps would grab a hold of this unity. John 17, chapter, John chapter 17, looking at verse 20. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe. That's you and me those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. 
that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, and they that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know, that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. You see, the unity for which he prays has a reason behind it. That the world may believe that God sent Jesus. You see, God sent Jesus to declare himself in the flesh to a world that needed to know God. Unity in the body. Unity that rallies around Jesus. Unity that doesn't rally around family integration. Unity that doesn't rally around um, any one particular uh, doctrinal issue. That we raise it up so high above everything else. This has become the God that we worship. This one doctrinal issue. No. We rally behind. We are unified behind Jesus Christ. Church. That's our rallying cry. Jesus That's what Christ prayed for, that we would be one in such a way that when people see us, they themselves would be drawn to the Father. Do we operate and live that way? Are we about the unity, keeping the unity in the bond of peace, as Paul writes? Are we willing to let go of some things that maybe we like, some things that we prefer for the sake of the unity of the brethren. Oh, how good and pleasant it is when we dwell together in unity, the psalmist says. I believe God would want us to get this. In fact, I was reading, I was reminded in Proverbs six nineteen. You remember the list of things God hates? Do you remember that? God tells us in his Bible what he hates. We ought to know some of those things he hates, if not all of them. One of the things, the last one on the list, one who sows discord among brethren. God hates it when his people sow seeds of discord, disunity. His church is to be in unity around the person of Jesus, lifting up the name of Jesus, proclaiming their allegiance to Jesus. Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before you. It's about Jesus. We are one in the spirit. We are one in the Lord. We pray that all unity will one day be restored. Right? Remember the song? And they'll know we are Christians by our unified love. Unity. So, we've got one more S, don't we? What's God have to say about Jesus? Here's the last one I want to leave you with. I believe God would want us to know that his son Jesus is the Savior. He's the Savior. You remember Luke chapter 2, the day that Jesus was born? In the city of David, there is a what? A Savior has been born to you. It was the announcement, the heralding of news. A Savior has been born. Luke 19, we see that Jesus reveals one of the reasons he's come. He's come to seek and to what? To save. That which is lost. And we see in Mark chapter 2 that he came for those who needed a doctor, not for those who thought they were already well. In other words, he came for those who, who saw their need to be saved, recognized the need, 
You only see him as savior if you recognize that you have a need to be saved, friends. That's why it's so important that we don't just say, you need Jesus, you need Jesus, you need Jesus. We need to understand why we need Jesus. We need to understand why we need a rescuer. Why do we need a deliverer? Well, there's this thing called sin that separates us from God. And we need someone to rescue us from our sin. We can't do it. No other man can do it. The Bible says there's only one person that can do it. There's only one person that can cross the great divide. And he did that through the cross. One person can do that. It's Jesus. But what a tragedy to be left behind when God has made every way possible for you to be restored, renewed, rescued from the wrath to come. Oh, by the way, that is coming. And in Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, it ends by talking about Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. You don't want the wrath of God to abide on you? Know that Jesus is the one who delivers you from the wrath to come. Jesus does. No one else does. Jesus does. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. It's that whole mentality, that, that, that idea back in the Old Testament. It just kind of keeps moving forward. His rescue, his deliverance, foreshadowing his deliverance to come in his son, Jesus Christ. A great rescue. Listen, think about it for a moment. Someone has rescued you from a burning building. They've pulled you out. They've risked their life. They've gone in. They've pulled you out of the fire. And you're going to turn around. You're going to go and live however you want to live by your own way and your own rules. Jesus rescued you. He was sent on a rescue mission from his father. We have this God in the scriptures. When we read the scriptures, we, we see this God who has a pattern of rescuing his people. The, the parting of waters, uh, armies falling, nations being defeated. How about Jesus conquering the grave? Jesus is the Savior of the world, sent by God to deal once for all with man's sin problem. Where are you going to turn? To whom are you going to go? What does God have to say about his son, Jesus? Let's review him. J-E-S-U-S. What's the J? He's the what? He's the judge. God says about Jesus that he's the way to everlasting life, right? God also says about Jesus, the first S, that he is our sin bearer, right? And, and he also says this about Jesus, that Jesus is all about, what's the U? Unity. And last but not least, this is, this is a wonderful way for us to, to go as we think about what God says about Jesus, that Jesus is the Savior. He's our Savior. Who are you going to serve, church? And what are you going to do with Jesus? You know, there was a question that they posed to Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 25. A real simple question. They asked Jesus, in fact, I think they asked him this on more than one occasion, multiple times. Who are you? Who are you? And he's told them, and he's told them, and he's told them, and he's told them. And they don't believe. Friends, some of you have sat in here and you've heard messages, you've heard the gospel truth, you've heard, you've read yourself, you've heard on radio, you've heard online, you've heard messages about Jesus, you've heard about your need to believe and receive in this Jesus of the scriptures. And up to this point, you have not yet 
responded to this Jesus. We don't typically do any kind of invitation, come walk forward deal here. But I do want to make mention this morning of how vitally important, eternally significant it is that you know, that you believe, that you receive, that you walk by faith in this person of Jesus Christ. If we're going to build on a foundation of Jesus Christ, if we're going to have a relationship, go back to January 1, if we're going to have a relationship with God, it has to come through Jesus Christ. This is the one we're talking about this morning. Do you know him? I love the old hymn. Without him, I would be nothing. Do you know him? Ask the question. Do you know him? I want to give you one scripture and we're done. Turn to Philippians. By the way, Jesus is God's choice. There's no B, plan B for God. It's, it's, it's the way of Jesus. He's chosen his son. And I love what he says here in Philippians 2, verses 9, 10, and 11. I'm just close right here. Therefore, this is talking about, he just talked about how Christ became obedient even to the point of the death on a cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, church, there's going to be a day, and today might not be that day. There are some people today, many people today, who are thumbing their nose at Christ, forsaking the name of Jesus Christ. But there's going to be a day when all knees are going to bow to the King of kings and Lord of lords, this one that God himself has exalted. The name above every name. It's important, it's a significant thing, church, that we don't just know about this Jesus, but that we entrust our lives, our lives to this one who is deemed the judge, our everlasting life, our sin bearer, the one who calls us to unity in him, in Christ, and the one who stands as our savior the one who has rescued us and delivered us. The only one who can help in our time of need. My prayer is that you know this Jesus of the scripture. Let's pray. God, thank you for sending your son. I do thank you for what you have said in your word about Jesus. I pray that this church here at Hope in Christ becomes very familiar with this Jesus in such a way that we are walking with him, that as we abide in him, we are abiding in his word, we're getting to know him, we're building a relationship with him that's ongoing, that we're accessing this, uh, this unlimited uh, place of prayer that you've given to us to come and have conversation, to come and cast our cares upon you, to come and hear from you through your word that we would expect to meet you as we open the pages of scripture. 
And Lord, we thank you that you've given to us your son, who is our judge. Lord, you've given us everlasting life through belief in him. There is no other way but through Jesus. No way to you but through Jesus. I pray, Lord, we would carry these words with us today. That we would not just carry them and hold them in. But Lord, we would come to know them in such a way that we too become familiar with them. That we can share them with others. For Lord, this is the great news that we have. It's the great treasure. It's the joy that we have of finding the treasure in the field. Go and sell in all that we have so that we can obtain that treasure. Do we operate like that, Lord? I pray we would. That we would forsake it all as those fishermen did when they pulled up to shore. The Bible says they forsook it all and followed you. May that be so as well with your church here at Hope in Christ. May you get all the honor and the glory. And may we recognize that you are almighty, that you are all powerful, that you are at work as we are working out our salvation that you've so freely given to us through Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.